I think our attention is a bit like a river. So sometimes you could do with a dam because you can't stop yourself from focusing on something. And sometimes you go through massive droughts. But most attempts to forcefully redirect rivers or mess with their flow, yeah, they end badly in the long, long run. So I think we should actually honor the irregularities of the flow and go with it. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Today I'm going to share with you two reviews from the Apple Podcast platform, both of which directly reference one of my favorite episodes, episode 82 with Casey Davis of Struggle Care. She's beyond brilliant, and we talk about so many common struggles and pain points. If you're a fan of this podcast and somehow you missed that episode, make sure to go listen to it after you listen to this episode, of course. Okay, the first review is from Chubba123. It's entitled Mind Blown. Listening to your interview with Casey Davis, I feel like I have been hit with so much information in a good way, especially in the beginning. ADHD isn't about lack of attention, it is lack of ability to regulate your attention. I have had my suspicions for a while, but in my heart I always knew something was just different about me. I hopefully am meeting with a new doctor soon to get on the road to diagnosis and learning more about myself. Thank you so much. And the next one is from a listener called Betsy McKeeman. It's entitled, OMG, this isn't how other people operate. Longtime subscriber, first time reviewer. I'm listening to your interview with Casey Davis today in tears. I was struck so profoundly by your discussion with her around finally being able to acknowledge to yourselves how hard you had been working just to keep from forgetting things on a day-to-day -day basis. I was diagnosed at 36 and at nearly 42, this is something I still struggle with daily. But when Casey said, now I have to choose, am I going to go to the garage and get more toilet paper and forget what I was on my way to do? Or am I going to keep doing what I was doing and forget the toilet paper? And I will only remember it when I come across it in my visual field. The part that really sold me on having ADHD was realizing, oh my God, this isn't how other people operate. This isn't how other people operate. Uh, and I'm crying again. You are such a gift. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm taking this phrasing back to my MD to let her know my meds need to be adjusted again. Thank you, Chuba and Betsy. Chuba, I hope you had a good experience with your new doctor and that you've been finding help and support on your diagnosis journey. Betsy, I'm sorry I keep making you cry, but thank you so much for taking the time out of your day for that lovely feedback and review. Big hugs to both of you out there if you're listening. Okay, here we are at episode 103 in which I interview Christine Syrad. Christine is a gastronomist and fermentation enthusiast who also happens to speak five languages. She grew up between the UK, Japan, and Italy and has spent the last decade or so in Switzerland where she now resides with her husband and daughter. She's also the face of Fermentable, where she not only teaches workshops to other chefs about the art of fermentation, but also packages and sells her own fermented products. 
Christina and I talk all about her globetrotting childhood and mixed race heritage and how her ADHD contributed to her many varied career paths over the years, as well as how she believes her hypersensitivity helped her learn so many languages over the years. We also talk about her years living in Japan and how ADHD is viewed in Japanese culture. Christine is an absolute delight and a wonderful storyteller. I truly hope you love this interview as much as I did. Enjoy. All right. Well, Christine, thank you so much for joining me. Very excited to chat with you and hear a little bit more about your own crazy story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So why don't we just get started then? Um, You know, I'm curious, you had mentioned in our correspondence that you were diagnosed when I had a kid, which I think just says so much. (laughs) You're just like the chaos (laughs) of a child entering your life. But what was what was going on at that time? How old were you? And kind of what was what specifically was happening that made you start to look into ADHD or or think, you know, I, I need to look into this? Yeah, so it's a little bit um, long-winded, I have to say. Um, it always is. <laughs> I, <laughs> right, especially us. Um, so this was last year. My uh, daughter's four and a half, but it all came to a head last year when I was 34. Um, and basically, I mean, her entrance into my life did disrupt things. But to be fair, so did COVID and the fact that I'd moved to a new place in Switzerland, quite a rural place. Um, whilst pregnant, um, you know, there were all these other things going on. Um, and, you know, becoming a mother was definitely quite full on, but I think it would be remiss of me to say it, it was just simply motherhood. Um, it was definitely the catalyst, but there's quite a big caveat. So my daughter was um, breech, um, which led to a few complications. She's perfectly healthy and fine. But she had hip dysplasia and she had a sixth toe, which has nothing to do with her having a breach, but it did require an extra operation. And um, most importantly, she had congenital torticollis and it was actually really severe. Like I later, as in last year, right before my diagnosis, find out, found out that it was sort of the severity is like one in a thousand in terms of how often it occurs but I was not privy to that information <laughs> for three and a half years. So basically, um, my struggling with trying to find a way to help her and feeling like I was failing because all the physio we were doing, the osteopathy, the Feldenkrais, which, you know, was it started at it started when she was two weeks old. And we were going weekly, sometimes bi-weekly. And honestly, there was just no improvement. And I think this. I assume this is quite relatable, but (laughs) when you've been living with ADHD and you have no idea, you've probably spent a lot of your life being told that you've sort of got the wrong end of the stick, you haven't interpreted instructions properly, um, all that auditory processing, not going the way everyone else expects it to go, and also just feeling like, like generally feeling like you don't have the manual that everyone's been given, right, on life. So there I am having been told by multiple medical professionals that all I needed to do was continue with the stretching and the physio and, you know, make her sleep in a certain position, et cetera, et cetera. And it would all, you know, clear itself up. And they're thinking, oh, I'm definitely doing something wrong (laughs) because it's really not getting any better. And I'd already, I think I'd already come to terms with the fact that it wasn't my fault that she had it in the first place. I was really... I did a lot of um, 
well, I, I self-talk, let's say. I kept, I kept telling myself actively that there was nothing I could have done about her being breech. But I unsuccessful, well, yeah, I was trying to push this voice to the back of my head that was telling me, yet, you know, since she was born, you haven't been doing enough or you, you're unaware of something that you should know about. And, you know, then came COVID. I live in Switzerland, but my parents live in Japan. The rest of my family lives in the UK. So I didn't get to see them at all. Um, my grandmother passed away during COVID and I didn't get to see her. My, my work is in gastronomy and I'm freelance. So that completely dried up <laughs> for basically two years here. So this whole cocktail led me to the initial diagnosis of severe depression. And luckily, I had the just gut feeling that my, my doctor wasn't quite right for me. And I switched to an American lady here in Beale. I live in a relatively small town, but um, I have a wonderful American therapist who, after a couple of sessions, I think basically she very cleverly nudged me towards me asking, hang on a second, could I have ADHD? To which she said, well, if you didn't mention it, I was waiting for you to mention it today. And if you didn't, I was going to bring it up next week. I was like, oh, <laughs> and, you know, thanks to her, well, just, you know, my world has changed. And I'm very fortunate to say that I'm off the antidepressants now, at least for now. And um, now that I've got to sort of the root cause of it, I'm, I'm doing a lot better. But uh, it wasn't easy. Um, this whole, you know, the feeling that everyone knows what's going on and you don't, it's just been going on for my whole life. So when it came to something as important as my daughter's health, it basically destroyed me. So obviously, becoming a mother in a foreign country as well is a lot. And all the coping mechanisms that you've unknowingly built around you tend to crumble and that's what happened to me and then you throw in covid etc etc and the fact that my daughter had health issues and voila there you have it uh, ADHD diagnosis at least 34 <laughs> wow oh I want to give that mother a hug um uh it's so oh my goodness that's it's so relatable in just in terms of um that uh, the overwhelm of of even just thinking mm -hmm. about like the sleep deprivation when you have a baby and the hormonal changes of your body you know your body is so foreign and um and to imagine like just going back to the hospital over and over and over again and then also just knowing not even with illness of my children but i remember when my mother was ill you know, I was always keeping notes because every doctor was coming in and give, just peppering right. me with information. Yeah. And so, and this was before my diagnosis as well, but like just always knowing that I was going to immediately forget everything they said and <laughs> desperately trying to like cling to all of that information and feeling like somehow that might give me some sense of control in a totally uncontrollable situation. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm glad it led to a diagnosis uh, because, you know, like you say, your world changes so drastically uh can yeah, what do you really 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 <laughs> yeah what do you when you said my world has changed I, I I took note of put wrote that down in my notes what it what exactly does how did it change for you oh it's it's so manifold I mean first of all I immediately recognized that um so I'm the only one that's officially diagnosed in my entire family 
<laughs> it's quite clear to me as a non-professional, but someone who's lived with the condition <laughs> for 35 years now, that my husband um, likely has it. Different symptoms, but even he's warmed to the idea now. Um, and my father and my grandfather <laughs> and my daughter, most likely. Um, so first of all, it it's taught me, um, you know, to to be mindful of of that with my with my family members you know when they're acting in a less than agreeable way i try to remind myself that well they they are probably struggling with the same things that i struggle with um and they're not they're not as equipped as i am now um so there's that and then well my therapist put it really well actually last week so it's been almost a year since my diagnosis but she pointed out that i'm still grieving my neurotypical sense of self. And I think that's really true. And I look back on like m many, you know, many of the people who have been on your show, it, we, we all look back on, on things from the past and we go, oh my gosh, if only I'd known. And so I'm so much more compassionate with myself. I'm still struggling with, but learning to calm down because <laughs> I'm not good at that. And to let myself off the hook when I've done something badly. But I guess most importantly, to not dwell on when I've done something badly and to shift the focus. I think I spent a lot of my time trying to improve on the things that I was bad at rather than further excelling at the things that came easily to me. And that that was quite heartbreaking when I look back because actually my academic career, my professional career up to a certain point, it's definitely dictated by this whole need to prove that my my flaws um, they won't bring me down, you know. But um, it, it meant I wasn't really maintaining the things I was good at and kind of ignoring them. Um, so that's that's something I'm trying really hard now to sort of change. Um, if I can't do something, you know, I weigh up whether it's worth, you know, well taxes and things like that. You know, you, you've got to. <laughs> but other things like. You know, I've let my friends all know that I, I just can't do punctuality. It's a miracle I'm here for this interview on time. So, you know, um, I've just told them, like, if, if you can't handle it, I'm, I'm really sorry. Then um, with, with friends who are not that close with, I've had to say, like, um, it's a huge source of stress for me if I have to try really hard to be on time. And if, if you can't handle it, then it's OK. I respect that. Don't worry. But um, I'm not going to fix it for your benefit. Um, it's not like I'm an hour late to meetings. It's usually five or 10 minutes, but for some people that's really annoying. So, and I understand that. So, you know, things like that where I've just said, well, I may lose a relationship over some of my habits um, that I'm not really willing to spend a lot of energy and time on improving. But, you know, the people that really love me and I love too, aren't that bothered by it. So all these, all these things basically have just made my life at least a smidgen easier. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? You have to kind of qualify that. Um, yeah, that's so well said. And I think, you know, there's something about the diagnosis, just giving that language to who we are and is really the start of, of those boundaries that you talk about, right? And and really setting ourselves up for like, what am I comfortable with? What, 
what can I ask for too? I think that's the other thing. It sort of really opens up that understanding and that language really opens up like, what do I need to ask for right now in my life? Whereas like, it feels so easy when you say it out loud. And yet I think about, you know, that one of those things that I struggled the most with, which was just like self-actualization uh, and just self-realization and real, like, what do I even need? Just always pushing forward, pushing through, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Now you have such an interesting, unique childhood. Uh, so I want to just backtrack here and kind of go through this timeline because you, your father's British, your mother is native to Japan and they, but they met in the UK or did they meet in Japan and then move to the UK? Actually they <laughs> met, they met in Japan in a pub because my mother had gone to the UK to learn English. And she found that playing darts with old men was the best way to learn sort of authentic English. So she continued going down to the pub that was full of foreigners at the time um, in her hometown of Osaka. And just, she, you know, she continued to play darts and drink pints of beer. And my dad was intrigued. He was there. He spent some time in Italy first after finishing his studies. And then he thought, oh, no, I need to go somewhere more exotic or, you know, I need to feel a little more out of my depth. So he went to Japan and purposely chose to go to Osaka rather than Tokyo, where he knew there'd be fewer foreigners. Plus, it's an amazing city. Uh, having been to it both, is, yeah. it's so fantastic. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm on a drug trip when I'm in Osaka. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good description of the experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, he chose to go there. He, he you know, he'd heard the people are funny, which, you know, I can attest to. And so they met, you know, in a pub but in Japan. And when he decided he had to go back and get a real job back in the UK, he decided he couldn't live without her. So they had agreed that they weren't even going to bring up marriage. But, uh, you know, that happened. And then um, she, my mom was dragged back to the UK. Her, her time in the UK when she was 18 was miraculous because, you know, it was not miraculous. It was more like, um, I don't know, she, she really thoroughly enjoyed it because it was temporary. Uh. But... When she went back, she realized the food choices were really difficult for her. So when I was three, my dad said, okay, I'm going to try and placate my wife because I care about her. <laughs> we're going to move to Italy where, you know, there's at least more sunshine and the food is good. <laughs> so they did that <laughs> when I was three. And I went to the local sort of kindergarten type thing there. And then... When I was six, my parents realized I'd, I'd actually missed the first year of school in the UK because they start at five over there. And they, they, you know, they said, oh, OK, we should probably move back now and we should probably send Christine back with her grandparents so she can start school and then we'll make our way over later. Which is quite significant, actually, because <laughs> through therapy, I've realized that's one of the reasons I have a really hard time asking for help because I was supposed to be quite independent, age six. And then that tangled with the ADHD has, has led to some interesting outcomes here and there in life. But yeah, we made it back to the UK and we were there until I was 10. And then my mum basically said, you know what, if we don't move to Japan now, um, it's going to be really difficult for Christine to catch up culturally and linguistically. So they did that basically for my sister and I's benefit. And they've lived there ever since. That was in 1997. And I came back to Europe um, when I was 18. 
because I chose to study English and Italian literature. Very useful, might I add. <laughs> and had you held on to Italian that whole time? Yes. Well, I spoke children's Italian. Okay. Because my parents would, you know, they would ferry us back to the UK and to Italy every summer. And um, I spent time with our family friends. But academically speaking, it was, my Italian was really lopsided, let's say. So that's also, well, basically, I didn't know what the heck to do. Um, so I thought, well, I like Italian a lot and English, uh, you know, it's, it's my best subject. So I just, I, it didn't even occur to me to think of what I would do four years later. So I just went with what I liked, um, which is nice. You know, it's nice to be that naive, I suppose. Um, <laughs> luckily it has served me well in the long run, but I did finish my studies, um, during the recession that hit in 2009. So that's when I thought, ah, that's why people do things like economics and <laughs> maths and engineering. <laughs> but hey, it brought me to Switzerland because there were no jobs in in, um, in London at the time. And it was a banking job, was it not? Sort of? It was in the genre? It, be it became one, yes. Yeah, so I had done um, an internship at an investment bank um, while I was studying. And it was a Japanese investment bank. So basically, by virtue of speaking Japanese, they took me on. Um, and I actually really liked it. I, I was really surprised because it was so varied day to day. You know, you had to keep up with current events and that would impact, you know, it had like a domino effect on multiple things. And, I, you know, it's perfect for someone with ADHD. But they had to withdraw their offer of taking me on after graduation because they'd fired their entire second floor. At which point I was like, well, I'm not going to compete with all the other people who have studied the relevant subject for a handful of jobs. And out of the blue, I got sort of quasi headhunted for a position in marketing, actually, in Switzerland. And they wanted a Japanese speaker, but they also wanted an Italian speaker. And I was cheap. <laughs> so they took me. Um, I didn't even really know what marketing was. I'm not going to lie. I, I, basically, I basically had no clue. Um, but I was like, I need a job. I'll How hard it. could it be? <laughs> exactly. It was the worst possible job for someone with ADHD. It was Google Ads. So basically, I had to, every day I had to monitor how much each keyword had cost a campaign. So that's a lot of Excel files, a lot of looking at micro movements, no big bangs, nothing. <laughs> And I did that for two years, moved into another team within the company, realized it's just not my thing. And I really wanted to improve my German. So I thought, let's try banking again. I'm in Switzerland. You know, why not? And I wormed my way into a job I was not at all qualified for. Ironically, I'd been rejected for all the the appropriate jobs, like communications, etc. <laughs> no reply there. Um, but I ended up um, in private banking for Japanese clients. And little did I know I was going to like that even less <laughs> than marketing. But it was it felt like an achievement to, to kind of weasel my way into um, yeah, a world that I really didn't belong in. Um, I think a lot of people that I've met who have ADHD, we have the same kind of effect on people. We managed to convince people that, you know, we're fast learners. We'll, we'll get the job done. Don't worry. 
And so that's, yeah, that's how I got the job. But it didn't last long. Two years later, I was out of there as soon as I got my residency permit. (laughs) I think about so many jobs I applied for where the qualifications I said I had, and then the night before, I would just be cramming, learning as much as I possibly could to (laughs) fake it about that software. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. File that under the signs were there all along. Uh (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but it's you know it's it's a blessing and a curse, isn't it? Being quick on our feet um, until I think until I get severely burnt by that, by the procrastination, the you know waiting till the last minute to prepare, or finding myself in a situation I don't belong, but thinking, oh, you know, I'll convince them. It hasn't burnt me yet, so I, I just know I'm going to continue to do it. <laughs> but it's highly stressful. Well, I it was actually Tamara Rosier's book, Your Brain is Not Broken, that really sort of shifted my mentality around procrastination. I kind of enjoy it now. Um, I, I feel like I'm trying to reframe it and kind of enjoy the ride a little bit more. And I feel like a lot of the downside of procrastination tends to be the anxiety leading up to it. So I like try to minimize the anxiety around leading up to the procrastination and just accept that there is no other way but to leave it to last minute in order to sort of create the sense of urgency. So that's what I'm trying to do about that. Uh, you know, in that, that it actually becomes a lot easier to just say, I'm going to do that last minute because that's how I do things <laughs> and just accept it. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's really helped me kind of feel to minimize some of the the angst around the, the process. I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash womenADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash womenADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. Say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So how many languages do you speak? Well, um, <laughs> I function <laughs> in five. This is the thing. I was, I was asked recently by a friend if, if I had any advice on how to improve their French, because French is the last language. Um, I, I, I hesitate to use the word learned because I don't do learning. I do picking up. Um, you know, I, I picked it up really quickly. It helps to speak Italian. They're pretty close. It helps that I'm married to a Frenchman and that we moved to a region where half the people speak French. Um, I, I live I live near the only bilingual um, city in Switzerland. So you get both thrown at you on a daily basis, German and French. Um, and I, I didn't know how to answer her, basically. She, I, I, I'm a qualified English teacher. That's what I did while I was bored at the bank. I, I got myself a, a CELTA diploma from my desk yeah. because Why not? I was that understimulated. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, despite being an, a teacher and having worked as a teacher, I, I didn't actually have concrete advice. And I actually, now that I've been diagnosed, I think it's due to the hypersensitivity. I, I, I always thought I had problems with my ears because I'm always saying like, what, what? And seemingly not hearing things. But I can't drown things out, is what I've realized is the case. If I if I can hear a clock ticking somewhere and the, the tap's running and someone's trying to talk to me, forget it. I just can't. I, my brain won't prioritize their voice over all the other distractions. And I think while it annoys the people around me <laughs> sometimes because they have to repeat themselves or they have to turn down the music just to talk to me, um, I think it's actually put me in good stead in terms of picking up languages because... I, I just hear the, the nuances, the little details, and they just they go straight into my brain, basically. And it may sound arrogant, but it's it's rather effortless. I mean, English and Japanese, I, I grew up with, so those are they're part of my heritage. It was part of everyday life growing up, and then Italian was gifted to me, I'd say, by my parents. But with German and French, considering it's it's meant to be difficult to learn a language um, once you reach adulthood. It was relatively effortless, but you just, you know, you shouldn't look too closely at my grandma, <laughs> you know, and uh, I, I teach in French now. Um, I get by in French, you know, pretty, pretty much. Uh, I feel quite, quite at ease in French, but oh my gosh, when it, I'm so grateful to translation, um, translation uh, software and stuff for when I have to actually write an email because... If you want to sit me down and get me to actually review conjugation and stuff like that, then uh, it's going to take a lot of sedating. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been an organic process. So there, there are massive holes, but, you know, I can pass for someone who speaks the language and comprehends the language, uh, comprehend the language really well in, in five languages, you can say. Wow. It's so fascinating about the... Um... The, your theory about sort of the difficulty, uh, what's the word, the hypersensitivity, but that sort of difficulty in terms of um, 
filtering information exactly and and how that actually you know sort of allows everything to be absorbed i love that idea because we've i've often talked in the podcast about memory <laughs> and how there's certain things that I found interesting about, you know, I, I will have a really difficult time with so many, you know, with short term memory and so many things, you know, somebody will introduce themselves immediately forget their name, that kind of thing. But like, I never had a hard time with monologues, you know, memorizing monologues or you know, um, when I was in theater. And so, it would, you know, I was like, there's different parts of your brain where, where things just sit. And then when it's time to access it, you, there's no, it's like you said, it's effortless. It just tumbles out of you. <laughs> and I feel like language almost is sort of falls into that, even though, I mean, I grew up growing up in Canada, I spent probably at least 12 years learning French and I've retained almost none of it. Uh, <laughs> and, and that fascinates me too. Um, you know, just grammar, vocabulary, just the memory and vocabulary is just impossible to me. I can conjugate no, no problem, but I have no vocabulary anymore. Yeah, I think a lot of it's context driven as well, isn't it? I think um, if you were really into the monologue, I, I can see how it would be easier. I mean, dopamine, right? Yeah, <laughs> to retain yeah, yeah. than something that feels maybe inconsequential in that moment. You know, I think I think uh, dopamine determines what I retain and what I don't retain. To be honest. Now, do you do you require subtitles when you are watching TV or movies? Because I I feel like that's another one that we sort of think a lot about, which is like why the need for subtitles. Sometimes I think it's to anchor my attention to a to a movie or a TV show, but I also have a really difficult time hearing. You know, like I had a really really hard time when we were all wearing masks. I could not hear a thing. I really didn't realize how much I relied on mouth movements uh, and lip reading. Um, and so I'm like, well, maybe subtitles has to do with that in terms of filtering it sound. So I'm curious, do you rely on subtitles and what language do you use? <laughs> do you put them in? <laughs> um, I, I absolutely do. But the thing is, in Japan, there are subtitles on all TV shows, not, not um, you know, like um, like a TV series, but a talk show, for example, always have sub has subtitles and i i wasn't sure why still not entirely sure why but i think i definitely you know i come with this preconditioning <laughs> but well as i get older i definitely rely on them more and i think it's the same as you i use it to anchor myself actually and i usually have the subtitles on in the same language actually it's really that there's a language tip if you if you watch a tv show in french it's good to have the french subtitles there because actually you know they don't pronounce the words the way they're written half the time so it's nice to have that cue um i, I found that um depending on the sound system as well i really need subtitles if if the bass or i don't know something other than the the vocals um come out strong I have, again, I, I think it's the filtering thing. I, I can't focus on what's being said. But now that you mention it, I do think I need subtitles in order to stay focused on watching the show because otherwise I'll get up and go and do something else. And I actually met, met someone around the time I got my diagnosis. Um, he was getting his diagnosis too. And he's the only other person I've met who, who, um, who had to have that I've met in person. I've heard about the phenomenon a lot since, but we had to have um, some sort of TV show on in the background in order to actually get our work done. So, you know, talk about academic work, but I always had something like 
Sex and the City or something that I'd already watched a few times on in the background. And we both realized, oh, that was our anchor. We needed something that we could just sort of listen to. I don't know, corner of your ear, <laughs> making up idioms here. But, you know, it was just on in the background. But it, you were paying just enough attention to it to not feel the need to go up and, I don't know, do the washing up or invent a new cocktail, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I realized I have two ways of consuming media. So if I don't have the subtitles on it, it usually means I'm doing something at the same time. And it's just this comforting thing that I have that glues me to what I'm doing. And if I actually want to consume the show or whatever it is that I'm watching, I need the subtitles. Or my mind wanders, but more likely my body wanders. I'll just leave the room. So, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. But, yeah, now that you mention it, it's, it's definitely it has a lot to do with that, too. Yeah. Right. It is. I'm yeah. so fascinated by that. Uh, and, and you're right. It is. Uh, it's very common to have a show, you know, to sort of rewatch old shows over and over again and to have them in the background as as almost like a form of body doubling too, like just a, a yeah. form of com company yeah, in the way that I might have used going to a coffee shop when I was studying the same way. And I'm like, is that just background noise or is there something about the company uh, of other people? Um so, yeah, it's so fascinating and and also so validating when you hear other people <laughs> who are also doing these weird things, right? <laughs> Definitely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And okay, so now I have some more questions. Uh, uh, I feel like I'm, I feel giddy because they're such silly questions, but I'm like, what do you? What language do you dream in? Is <laughs> you know, that 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 was that was a question for me in a job interview. Really. <laughs> Uh, I had the weirdest interview at a bank in Zurich. And actually, the guy was like, oh, um, my daughter's never lived in Japan. He was Japanese. He's my daughter's never lived in Japan. And when she sleeps, she, she sleep talks in English. And I'm really concerned. What language do you dream in? I'm like, what does this have to do with the job? <laughs> and I told him, I don't remember. I never remember. To be honest, I have no idea. Wow. I do see talk from, from time to time, apparently. And it's what I say and do is apparently terrifying. Um, and that's usually been in the language of whoever I have to share the room with. <laughs> well, that's really considerate. <laughs> yes, except for when, you know, I'm saying, you know, I, my friend said once she, she woke up and I was crawling to the end of the bed and I was saying, she's coming, she's coming, you know, horrible things like that. It might have been better if I'd said that in Japanese and she couldn't understand. <laughs> Um, but I, actually, yeah, I don't know how to answer that one. I, I, I never remember the language. But do you have like a default thinking language when you're by yourself, considering we have the constant monologues in our head? It def it's definitely context-based, I'd say, because yeah. it, it tends to be English because my husband and I speak English together and most of the close friendships I have here are sort of English-based, let's say. Um, so English is dominant now in my life. Um, I'd say before when I lived in Japan, it was Japanese. My friends and I spoke a complete mix of the two. Um, but oddly, sometimes if I'm with my parents-in-law, I find myself thinking in French, even though I'm not that agile in French, which is probably why by 9 p.m. I'm exhausted. <laughs> so I'm quite heavily influenced by my surroundings, I think. Yeah. But it's usually English, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. 
So fascinating. Um, <laughs> I have, my brother is a polyglot. And so it's always been one of those things where I'm like, I'm pretty sure he has ADHD, but I so I so deeply do not relate <laughs> to multilingual <laughs> the, that talent that I'm like, how is it possible? And yet it there is a lot that feels like you said, like that makes sense in terms of of being, you know, juggling these plates, uh, but metaphorically speaking. And then do you feel like like looking back at your you know, over your life through this lens, as one does after an ADHD diagnosis, do you feel like, um, I guess, you know, two part, are, what were some of those things growing up, uh, you had mentioned growing up with your grandparents and sort of needing to be self-sufficient at an early age, I think it definitely rings true. Um, are there other things that you notice where you're just sort of like, oh, the signs were so clearly there all along? And does and, and Okay, I'll just ask that question because the other one's a little too obtuse. I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there's no such thing. Um, I have prepared for that to that question. Um, <laughs> I mean, there were just so many. Um, <laughs> I, I was actually talking to my mum. She was here. She, um, we celebrated her birthday um, all together here last, yeah, two weeks ago. So she was just here from Japan, and as she was leaving, I kind of told her that. Um, you know, I appreciate everything she did for me, but it must have been hard not knowing that I had ADHD for her as well. Because I took so many risks. I would jump off of furniture sort of two meters high, at least when I was four, try and land on my bed. And I missed in Italy, we had this like really hard tiling, you know, and silly me, I did it in front of a friend. So he told my mom what I did. <laughs> but the thing is, I'd get into trouble. And I think that was just like a default reaction I don't blame her for it I think when you're concerned for your child you tend to sort of it's outrage really isn't it um that that you see from the kid's point of view and so I did things like I couldn't really roller skate very well but there was a wall about 20 centimeters wide and a meter high that I decided to rollerblade along and I fell obviously without a helmet on my head and I was in so much pain that I hid under my parents' bed and was crying. And when I was asked what happened, I didn't dare say what it was. And when I look back on it, I'm like, oh my God, you know, I could have had, I probably did have concussion, but you know, I think children are just <laughs> recover quickly. Um, I think it was really quite bad. And, you know, had it been just a little worse, me not telling my parents could have had, you know, really detrimental effect. Um, and so there are things like that where I think, okay, to me, it's obvious because I'm now equipped with way more information about all the symptoms and behaviors, you know. Um, but to my parents, it, it wasn't. Um, and those are just, you know, things in sort of early childhood. But if we fast forward to academic, you know, when when my life became more academic, it just it just got so clear. Like I did the international baccalaureate, and I would not wish that upon any young adult with ADHD even my therapist has said because she's an English-speaking one you know working in Switzerland a lot of her um, patients or you know clients they the ones that are going through the IB are really suffering and I think that's where I really would have liked to have known actually because until I turned 16 I was quite well, I was, I, I was definitely a people pleaser already at that point having been told numerous times you know 
it's nice. This 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 uh, piece of work that you've done is nice, but it's not what we asked you to do. <laughs> you know, I always got this like backhanded compliment, and then I I really put a lot of pressure on myself to, to sort of get with the program, I suppose. Um, and it was all going quite swimmingly until the IB, and the IB is six subjects that you have to do, three of which um, you're supposed to be very good at. Those are at higher level, and three of which um, uh, you know you, you have to do them, um, but it, they may not be your strongest subjects. It's, it's to, just to, you know, produce well-rounded students, of course. And then there's theory of knowledge, which is basically philosophy, and that required an essay and some sort of dissertation-like essay that was completely unrelated to any subject you're doing. And then creativity and action and service, 50 hours of each that you have to submit. It was a lot to, you know, stay on top of. And I decided to go to university in the UK. Um, so... I was actually required to get a certain score, overall score, in order to be accepted to the university, the, my, my first choice. Um, and I was so jealous of my friends who were going to the US because they just had to do the SAT and get good grades, but they didn't have to get good marks and the things they were absolutely crap at. Um, and I just, I stayed awake till 4 a.m. doing my physics, like lab write-ups, because I just couldn't get them right. I had so many redos. Uh, because as soon as everything became sort of really rigid, I struggled all over again. And on top of that, I was taking flute lessons and my mother would give me, she would give me the money I was supposed to give to my flute teacher every month. And unless I was prompted, which I, I never was, I just forgot because I was playing the flute, but also thinking about what books I had to get from my locker, you know, in the 10 minutes I had before my next class. And so I racked up about 800, I'd say $800 um, equivalent worth in, in flute lesson fees that I never gave her. And so she called my mum, and my mum was mortified because I had the money and I'd been walking around with all this cash in my bag, just forgetting to give it to her. <laughs> and so my mum said, can you just remind her, please? You know, she can be a bit scatty. And my teacher was just like, no, no, she needs to learn, you know. And, you know, the thing is, I agreed with her at the time. I thought, yeah, why can't I just remember? But out of sight, out of mind, I was already struggling with the, the academic side of things. I just needed her to say, hey, can you, you know, do you have the envelope? But she didn't want to. And so she didn't get the money <laughs> for a long time. And so, you know, there are all these moments looking back where I thought, oh, gosh, if I'd known, I would have been kinder to myself. I'm sure people would have made accommodations for me. I might have even actually informed the university that I was applying to that I probably won't do as well as, you know, we all hope <laughs> in things like maths and physics. Um, that would have been in my letter. But yeah, they all feel a little bit like missed opportunities. But I look back and think, well, I made it though, despite all that. Mm -hmm. So there's like a bit of heartbreak for all the struggles that I went through, but also I think it's it's just made me good with adversity for better and for worse. Um, yeah. Like I said, I, I have a hard time asking for help um, and that's something I'm working on. And I think all of it sort of just combined has contributed to that. Um, <laughs> probably Deep down, I probably thought, even if I ask for help, I might not understand the help that I've been given. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, oftentimes I feel like it's hard to even articulate what help we need in the given moment, yes, right? Absolutely. And that and that can be really difficult, which is like I don't even know how to ask for help and what I would even ask for. So I'm just going to remain in this state of chronic overwhelm <laughs> until That's I so implode. True. Yeah. So now what was your mother's reaction? Because I'm, you know, I'm curious, how is ADHD viewed in Japanese culture? Um, you know, or yeah, was she just like, that's... that's the English side of you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do think she has it to a certain degree as well. And I think, you know, that's how she and my dad have managed to stay married for so long. Because, you know, my dad's brilliant. He's so clever. But oh, my gosh, just the number of times he's lost credit cards and things, you know started conversations with the people at the table next to us rather than continuing the conversation, you know, at a restaurant with his actual family, things like this, you know, that would drive most people mad. Um, she seems to have a certain tolerance for it. So she she was surprised, but not surprised, actually. Um, she, she then did some research and told me that in Japan, um, it, it, you're considered a diversity hire. <laughs> it's like a quota in big companies. Um, that companies have to, yeah, adhere to. They have to have a certain number of ADHD hires. I had no idea, actually, because it's just not talked about. Yeah. Um, I find it's not talked about much in Europe in general, like on the continent either. Um, it's definitely, I mean, it seems to be an Anglophone-centric cluster of information that's available at the moment. Um, but I know another Japanese lady here, um, and she got diagnosed in Japan. So I guess... It's, people are talking about it a little bit, um, but my mum was she was very accepting. Um, she she now yeah she's now trying to help me with managing how I relate to my daughter. Um, but I think for her realizing that she's married to someone who's not diagnosed but clearly has ADHD that has been eye opening for her. I think because she still spends pretty much every day with him, whereas I'm kind of you know out of sight out of mind for the most part to be honest because i'm on the other <laughs> side of the world but it's 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 changed our relationship for the better not that we had a bad relationship but i think um i was able to tell her some of the frustrations i felt when i was a teenager and we just sort of said you know it's a bit of a shame we didn't know because we would have handled them better but it's it's nobody's fault yeah, I, I often feel like my mother is the person I want to most talk to about this because I think she and I both struggled hand in hand when I was being growing up. Uh, you know, she had just as much confusion about why I was the way I was. Or, <laughs> you know, I think, and, and also, like you said, like I made so many poor choices. Um, you know, they poor, maybe not. I don't know. They are what they are. But I was very impulsive. And I, you know, I dropped out of, of high school, I dropped out of university, you know, and, and so she saw me kind of always struggling or just lost. And I think she didn't know how to help me. And so I often felt like she would have been very relieved, you know, I don't think mm. she would have, you know, sometimes I talk to women whose parents are very defensive, as though it's, a, it's, an, it's an attack mm. on their parenting. And I think she would have been really relieved to like, hear that, oh, that's the, okay, now we have the answer, finally. <laughs> because I think she, you know, it was, it was painful for her to watch me struggle. Absolutely. That's, um, it yeah, has to be, yeah. But it must be nice for your mom, like you said, like to sort of see the why behind some of these 
chronic behaviors too. I think that's also so helpful. And I loved what you said earlier, just about how gracious you are with your family. I wish I, I need to adopt some <laughs> of that with some of my undiagnosed family members uh, with my armchair diagnoses too, of sort of <laughs> having a little more compassion towards some of their behaviors to realize it's one thing to have ADHD. It's another thing entirely to have undiagnosed ADHD at the age of 80, right? <laughs> you know, and to have been a completely gen different generation, that sort of thing. So uh, I will take Absolutely. a page from your compassionate book. <laughs> <laughs> I try, I try. I mean, I'm not, I'm not perfect. That no one is, but like that there are moments where I just, I, I, I do want to just say to my dad, your life would just be so much easier if you went and, and talked about it. But you know, he, he's very busy. He, he he's very excitable and um, he loves people. So he'll take on projects when he doesn't have the capacity and uh, he manages it, you know, um, but I don't think he'd ever find the time um, to go and find out more, uh, not for his benefit, you know, maybe he does for his kids, but right. That's a very ADHD thing too. My ADHD gets in the way of me getting lots of different diagnoses. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I should really go see a doctor about that. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Uh <laughs> Better to bury your head in the sand. Yep. <laughs> when I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. I looked back at so much of my life, my grades in school, my multiple careers and hobbies, my friendships, my marriage, motherhood, my relationship with food and my body, like all of this with a new lens. And it was overwhelming to say the least. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're feeling blown away by this new insight into your brain and how it operates, I totally understand. I can help you begin to sort through this chaos, explore who you are and how your brain operates, so you can finally start to lean into your strengths and begin to use them to your advantage moving forward. Together, we can work to identify what obstacles you've been facing and create strategies to help you start living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. Head over to womeninadhd.com coaching to book a 30-minute initial consult with me so we can figure out if my brand of one-on-one -on -one coaching is right for you. Again, that's womeninadhd.com coaching, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one -on -one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was 
deep into hyperfocus ADHD research mode. I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy to access, self-guided and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. So I'm, we haven't even talked about fermentation because I feel like that was interesting too in terms of just your getting into that and just being such a, you know, chronic entrepreneur, but you've such, <laughs> such a fascinating story. Okay. Before we talk about fermentation, I want to ask you if you would, did you have another name for ADHD? If you could call it something else? I do. I do. So I thought about this one quite long and hard um, because I think like most people who have been diagnosed, I don't like the name at all. Um, I think it's a complete misnomer and it's also very negative. Um, so I think our attention is a bit like a river. So sometimes you could do with a dam because you can't stop yourself from focusing on something. And sometimes you go through massive droughts. But most attempts to forcefully redirect rivers or mess with their flow, yeah, they end badly in the long, long run. So I think we should actually honor the irregularities of the flow and go with it. And I think, you know, the name should reflect this. So and I feel also this like concept applies to our energy and motivation as well, not just our attention. Like I said, my issue with the current name is it draws too much attention to hyperactivity and a deficit of attention, um, implying there's always too much or too little of one or the other. And it's just, it's so much more multifaceted than that. Um, but if you have to boil it down to, for lack of a better word, a culprit, it's, it's dopamine to me. Um, so basically it's not very catchy, but I call it dopamine, dri dopamine driven, what, it's a bit of a tongue twister, dopamine driven focus and attention. No, not focus and attention, focus and action. Dopamine driven focus and action. Because I think, I think, you know, if there's dopamine to be found in something, I can focus for hours. Same with, you know, I, I love running and I'm not, I, I wasn't athletic. I wasn't very fit at all at school, but I derive, yeah, I guess a lot of dopamine from going out um, into the forest, you know, being alone and processing my thoughts. And I, I don't from other sports. People have tried to get me into other sports that are more sociable and it just doesn't work. I love climbing as well. I basically like all these sports where you have to sort of lose yourself. It's, it's my form of meditation. And I like them because they feel good. I'm at a lot more peace with, with my choices when I sort of put it down to dopamine seeking. I realize I can't force myself to want to do something. I can't force myself to like something. Um, if it's not happening, it's not happening. You know, that's why I like what you said about procrastination. Actually, I think I am going to try and embrace it more because 
you got to wait till the moment. If you try to do it earlier and there's no fire under your ass, you know, then there's going to be no dopamine. <laughs> right. Or even just, you know, how can I inject some dopamine into an otherwise uninteresting situation, like gamifying something or, you know, my the example I always use is when people clean their kitchen and they use they'll make a TikTok video and on, you know, time lapse to clean their kitchen. And then they post it as though you want to watch this. And I find that fascinating because I'm like, I'm not interested in you watching you clean your kitchen, although I'm sure some people are, but like, good for you for figuring out a very complicated way to get yourself to clean your kitchen, (laughs) which is like the task of cleaning my kitchen is boring. But if I set up my tripod and turn it into a video and post it and and add music and all of that stuff, uh, then it'll get me to do this. And I'm like, well, all right, good for you. You You figured out how to inject some dopamine into there. And I also think too, the 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 idea of the of chasing the dopamine was very fascinating to me when I was reading ADHD 2.0 and um, Hallowell and Rady were talking about the DMN, the default mode network, and how we sort of tend to catastrophize. We tend to focus on the negative when it is more interesting and how much that lends to our self-concept, sort of like you were saying earlier about like, how much time we spend focusing on the things we're not able to do as opposed and just dismissing all of the wonderful things that we do because they're effortless and how that, you know, so clearly lends to our negative self-concept in adulthood. And I was like, I just remember just blow being blown away by like, yes, that is also seeking the dopamine. Um, and how I, you know, all of that fretting and, and anxiety or just, you know, the anxiety around procrastination, right? All of that time spent <laughs> worrying, that is dopamine, you know, infused. So yeah, very fascinating. I mean, I, I can now very nicely link what you've just said to my fermentation by talking about my day, actually. Perfect. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm at home now, but I was in my atelier earlier and I have 35 kilos of jalapenos to process and I'm turning them into this lemon jalapeno paste, a bit like a Japanese condiment that's yuzu based, but I happen to have access to um, spent lemons. So a lady I work um, next to, she she does juice and I get to take the spent lemon and take off the zest and save that for, you know, until well now, basically. Um, a local farmer grew these jalapenos for me and I'm there I get to the atelier and I know I should get started because I've got to be home at three you know um, but I notice I have a bill that's you know appeared in my inbox and I was like oh I'm gonna forget about that so I better pay that bill of three francs fifty which is like three dollars I was like well you know this is clearly more important than getting started on this massive task and I just did I don't know I spent an hour doing stuff like that you know, peeling, I, I bought a new soda stream. The, um, I don't know if you have those over there, but um, this thing that makes, you know, fizzy water. And I was like, oh, I should take off the ugly stickers that are on it. I'm like, and I, the whole time I was saying to myself, just get on with it, you know? And then of course I get into it and then I'm really into it. And yeah, I, I, I have another 15 kilos of jalapenos that I need to go back and brine, you know? And I was just like, if I had been clever, not clever, I hate, no, that's the wrong way to put it, but you know, if I had sat down and faced my ADHD for a moment and said, you know what, you're going to want to do all these un- like irrelevant things first, but you're going to have to really be strict and just get on with the task at hand, or you're going to have to go back later in the evening and finish what you didn't do. I didn't give myself that moment. Um, and it's fine. You know, um, 
luckily I like my job. So going back, it's 10 minute drive. It's nothing. Going back there and finishing up is no problem. But, you know, the alternative would have been finish up with this interview, relax a little bit before my daughter gets home. But no, it never pans out that way. And being self-employed and like in, you know, the food business where you plan your own time, um, it's time sensitive in terms of, you know, you've got to work with the ingredients while they're fresh. Oh, my gosh, it's great for dopamine, but it's also equally terrifying sometimes because you've got to be really organized. So on one hand, I can't work for anyone. I, I, I clearly don't belong in an office. I can't do, you know, the nine to five. I'm made for entrepreneurship, but my gosh, like, you know, I'm my boss. And sometimes I don't like my boss. <laughs> um, I know. Yeah. I, I feel like whenever I talk to um, clients or any women who are complaining about their boss and administration, and I feel for them because I, I struggled so much and I highly doubt I could ever work for somebody again. Um, it, and, you know, l listening to them talk about administrative bullshit and, and just being like, and then, and then them saying like, maybe I should go into business for myself. And I'm always like, uh, no, <laughs> no, that's not the answer. <laughs> oh, it's so painful, isn't it? To hear those, those thoughts being said out loud. You're like, oh God, I have to bite my tongue so hard. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, I'm like, you're just going to trade all of that stuff for a whole other load of trouble. But yeah. Uh, so, so tell me a little bit more about fermentable, and and you work with chefs, or what are you, what are you, what are you doing yeah, right now? Um, well, I had to create my own job essentially. Eight years ago, I decided banking and sitting in an office basically wasn't for me. I, I can't handle arbitrary orders or tasks. Um, I was always mouthy. I think I, I pissed off every manager I had. But in my defense, in the last job, I was like, I need more work can you give me one more work please I'm not asking for a raise I will die if I don't have any work and they were just like well you know you haven't been here very long etc and it was soul crushing so I knew I wanted to work with food I love food I love that it brings people together I knew I don't want to be a chef because I have so many other interests and it's just so full-on so I saved up some money I did this English teaching qualification and I was like okay I'm gonna quit and then I'm going to teach English and try and build up something to do with food. And at the time, I was I was getting ill a lot. I had I basically had mono that kept coming back. It's not supposed to, but um, I think I was really unhappy in my job, and so my immune system was not cooperating. Uh, so I was looking into fermented foods because that's I had a lot of it. You know, I had a lot of miso, fermented veggies, etc. Back in Japan. And that's something that I definitely wasn't keeping up with. I didn't know I needed to <laughs> um, when I came to Europe. So I just slowly started cooking with more fermented foods. And then I thought, well, actually, there's a lot of there are a lot of chemicals and preservatives in the things that I'm, I'm buying or importing back, you know, bringing back with me from Japan. That can't be good. So I decided oh, I'm going to try and make things myself. Um, I'm very passionate about organic food whether it's labeled organic or just incidentally organic you know yeah all things food related um when it comes to sustainability seasonality fairness that kind of thing has been important to me since i did my year abroad in italy i was in turin which is the birthplace of slow food and their motto is you know um clean um good and fair so i definitely i think a seed was planted then and i decided I need to work 
with this concept somehow, but I don't want to go to culinary school and I don't want to be a chef. So I did work in a restaurant for six months just to, you know, brush up on life skills and things like this. And then I thought, you know what, fermentation is pretty cool. And at the time it's exploded, but at the time no one was talking about it. So I just decided to start giving workshops. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was learning at the same time, to be honest, but to motivate myself to keep learning, I had to. I was going to say a workshop terrify myself. (laughs) A a workshop is such a great excuse to learn what you need to know for the workshop. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, I mean, again, the signs are always there, and so that's how I've I've ended up giving workshops. Um, I now work in a restaurant once a week, which suits me really well because I get the camaraderie. I have like colleagues, and um, I do like restaurant work. Once a week is the dream seeing as I have a family. And um, I'm now pivoting towards giving workshops to chefs for the most part. As much as I like teaching the layman, there are now plenty of other people doing fermentation workshops. And I think I've got to a point now where I finally shed the imposter syndrome. And I realized, thanks to all my cultural input, you know, basically, um, throughout my life, I have quite a unique take on it. So I try to help chefs because I know they'll use it as well. I derive a lot of satisfaction knowing that what I teach them is going to have a ripple effect um, and it'll help them reduce waste in the kitchen. It'll help them stay seasonal. So I've moved towards focusing on teaching chefs. I still teach private events. Uh, I host private events in my atelier and uh, somehow I've ended up producing and selling products, which was never on my radar because that's, it, it sounded like <laughs> a lot of admin and, and it is, to be honest. <laughs> but, you know, people kept they'd come to my classes and then asked yeah but I just want to buy what you've what you've made actually and I'm a sucker for a compliment I guess you know I'll be very modest about it I'll be like oh no you know anyone can do that but uh I like to be patted on the back I suppose so I was like all right then I'll I'll make it so you can buy it so (laughs) it's just you know I have this very ADHD friendly mishmash thing going on um where no day is the same as another it's actually that's what's good about fermentation as well because you're not always in control it's the microbes um it's the seasons it's it's what's available so you kind of you think you're in charge but you're not so the outcome is always fun because you're like oh that didn't go as i wanted to but how can i pivot you know um so it's it has a lot of leeway as well so it suits me really well and uh yeah i've just kind of created this non-job job in a way for myself in gastronomy uh i love that oh um yeah and and yeah what a wonderful adhd perspective to have on kind of how you know what a what mishmash that our lives are and <laughs> and and i you know i feel like i can finally have gratitude for all of the unfinished projects and different career paths and certifications and all of the random kind of way in, in which we learn in this chaotic uh patchwork quilt kind of way that that leads me to sort of have this you know we just have interesting perspectives on you know bringing you i can see you bring your marketing background and mm-hmm. probably some the, the banking industry background and all of this right yeah true yeah oh thank you it's been eye-opening for me too and thank you for what you've been doing i mean your podcast really helped me um especially at the beginning um now i have so many podcasts lined up <laughs> So it's always, you know, um, but I keep coming back to your podcast. I keep coming back and, you know, when I'm having a moment of doubt, 
it, it lifts me up. Um, I just want to, can I add one last thing? Because I think it will help mothers. One thing that I just, you know, when I think about what led to the depression and the diagnosis, um, had my doctor, my, my daughter's doctor told me at the very beginning, there is no way that you can fix this. It has to be surgery or nothing. I wouldn't have been diagnosed probably. So, you know, that would have been far from ideal. But I would have also probably just been, you know, I would have saved a lot of anguish for three and a half years. And so I think that's something I've learned now. When I go and talk to a medical professional, I actually tell them, look, I have ADHD. Um, I, I need help with sort of grasping the severity of the situation. I need Otherwise, my mind will just run in 3,000 different directions. And at the end of the day, I'll blame myself. Um, and it's just something that we are so used to doing that, you know, it, it can easily be avoided. You know, all of that self-loathing could have been avoided. So whether it be in a medical context or any other context, I do feel like sometimes if, if you're able to and you feel comfortable, it's good to just be upfront and say, look, I need, you need to spell it out for me, you know? that would have changed a lot for me over the last four years. And uh, it's something I'm quite passionate about, you know, getting people to speak up. Um, exactly. Right. And I think advocacy around ADHD <laughs> is something that I, a lot of us gravitate towards for that same reason, which is, which is like, you know, a way to normalize it and, and to normalize the expression and, and develop the language that we were talking about of, of how to explain in a situation like that, what your needs are, but also, you know, that feeling of like, if I can help one new mother, <laughs> get through that time or you know a parent exactly. struggling with a child or like all of those moments if I could just like I just want to hug them all <laughs> I just you know because of that feeling of like oh Absolutely. if only I had known um yeah so very well said well thank you Christine Definitely. and so I will have in the show notes uh, a link to <laughs> fermentable but is there any other way people can reach out to you and um, I'm very um, slow on Instagram, but I, I, I am there <laughs> at, uh, at Fermentable. Um, but yeah, I mean, if anyone's curious, um, just, you know, I, I love connecting people. They can just drop me a message in my website. And if they have any questions about fermentation or anything else I've said on the podcast, yeah. Yeah, it's a gorgeous website. Oh, thank you my husband <laughs> beautiful website in all three languages uh oh so it's wonderful yes don't 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 look into the grammar of the other two languages too <laughs> <laughs> oh wonderful all right well thank you again thank you thank you and enjoy your day and there you have it thank you for listening and i really hope you enjoyed this episode of the women and adhd podcast also you know we adhders crave feedback and i would really appreciate hearing from you the listener if you're a fan of the podcast please take a moment to leave me a review on apple podcasts or audible and if that feels like too much and i get it then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one -on -one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman 
who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.